Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Sean Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. This is a special edition of historical drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about season one of the HBO series, The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age was renewed for a second season. If you haven't watched it yet, you may want to save this podcast for another day. We're recapping some of the events from season one, which ended with a grand ball. This is part one of our conversation about the women in the Gilded Age and how they exercise power through marriage, social power, and their children. It is a time in the United States when women couldn't vote. Jim Crow segregation laws and practices held back African-American progress. Immigrant labor was exploited, and we see an emergence of the great wealth gap. We invite you to listen to part two, where we continue our conversation and share what we'd like to see in the second season of The Gilded Age. Here's our recap of season one. Created and written by Downton Abbey's Julian Fellows, The Gilded Age is set in the year 1882 in New York City. The series dramatizes the tensions between old money New York society and the new money of the industrial barons who risen to power after the Civil War. In addition, there are a number of characters with secrets, the possibility of scandal, and personal histories that could make them social outcasts. We'll try to avoid spoilers for those who haven't watched the series. Episode 1 introduces us to Marion Brooke, played by Louisa Jacobson, who is part of an old Pennsylvania family. After her father dies, leaving Marion penniless, she's forced to live with her two aunts in New York City. Agnes Van Ryan, played by Christine Baranski, and Ada Brooke, played by Cynthia Nixon. Before we meet Marion's aunts, we meet Peggy Scott. Peggy Scott is played by Danae Benton. Peggy is waiting at the Pennsylvania train station just as Marion is saying her goodbyes to her family's lawyer, Tom Rakes, played by Thomas Cockerell. Tom later shows up in New York City to declare his love for Marion. When grifters steal Marion's purse and railway ticket, Peggy Scott loans Marion money to ride in the segregated Jim Crow coach with her to New Jersey. From there, they will take a ferry into New York City. Peggy Scott is returning to Brooklyn, where her family lives in a middle-class or striver Black community of business owners and professionals. Her father, Arthur Scott, a former enslaved person who is played by John Douglas, owns a pharmacy. Her mother, Dorothy Scott, a free woman of color, played by Audra McDonald, teaches music. Peggy is estranged from her father, and we don't learn why until near the end of season one of The Gilded Age, but we know Peggy wants to be a writer. She'll eventually write for the New York Globe, a real black press newspaper, 
run by the real T. Thomas Fortune, who is played by Sullivan Jones. Peggy's life is a world away from Marion's. Marion Brooke arrives at her aunt's Fifth Avenue brownstone. Aunt Agnes reimburses Peggy Scott for her niece's train ticket and discovers a connection with Peggy. Agnes was a donor to the Philadelphia Institute for Colored Youth, where Peggy was educated. Agnes Van Ryan hires Peggy as her private secretary. Peggy is given a room on the same floor as the household staff. This puts Peggy closer to publishers in the city, but also makes her a target of Agnes's resentful maid Armstrong, played by Deborah Monk. Agnes Van Ryan is widowed and financially secure, having married into one of old New York's prominent Dutch families. Her sister, Ada Brooke, is unmarried and dependent on Agnes's charity. Ada, unlike Agnes, is curious about the changes in the city and the world, but doesn't have the resources or social status as an unmarried woman to act on her personal interests. Agnes wants to see her niece, Marion, married well meaning marry someone from an American old money family like her dead husband. Across from the Van Rhines' tasteful brownstone is the newly built elaborate mansion home of the Russells, a new money family headed by George Russell, who's portrayed by Morgan Spector, and his wife, Bertha, played by Carrie Coon. George is a railroad baron, having made his fortune from the expansion of railroads. Bertha is his socially ambitious wife, who is snubbed by the old money set, but has the tenacity and her husband's money to win her place in that society. However, behind closed doors, Bertha is still talked about as coming from a family of potato pickers. Bertha's brass ring is acceptance into the exclusive social circle of Mrs. Astor, played by Donna Murphy, and based on the real-life Caroline Astor from one of old New York's prominent families. Bertha wines and dines and gains an ally in Ward McAllister, played by Nathan Lane. McAllister is a Southern transplant and social gatekeeper who maintains the 400 list, an actual New York Society list that the Astors and the Russells want to be on. George and Bertha have two children, Gladys, played by Tessa Farmiga, and Larry, played by Harry Richardson. They don't share their mother's goals of marrying advantageously. Larry doesn't want to fill his father's company shoes. Nevertheless, Gladys and Larry love their parents. More so than Larry, Gladys is under the domineering power of her mother, who is determined to marry her daughter to the most affluent prospect. Gladys Russell is being pursued by Agnes Van Rijn's charming son, Oscar, who's played by Blake Ritson. Oscar's goal is to supplement his inheritance with Gladys's big dowry 
and finance the lifestyle he's become accustomed to. Oscar's lover, John Adams, played by Claiborne Elder, is regarded as a good catch for Marion because he has the pedigree of being a descendant of U.S. Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams. John threatens to ruin Oscar's plans with Gladys in the name of his professed love for Oscar. The Russell and Van Ryan household staff, for the most part, are confined to their roles in the kitchens and domestic service. There's a low-key rivalry between the Van Ryan's British butler, Bannister, played by Simon Jones, and the Russell's American butler, Church, played by Jack Gilpin, who keep their respective households towing the line among the downstairs staff. The Van Ryan's German cook, Mrs. Bauer, played by Christine Nielsen, is a kind of soft-hearted matriarch to kitchen maid Bridget, actress Taylor Richardson. Bridget is an immigrant girl with a painful childhood past. And Mrs. Bauer is also a motherly figure for Jack Treacher, played by Ben Allers, who is the young footman or hall boy who suffered his own loss as a result of the Peshtigo, Wisconsin fire that occurred the same year as the Great Chicago Fire, 1871. The Russell's housekeeper, Mrs. Bruce, played by Celia Keenan Bolger, has worked her way up from farm girl to housekeeper in a large and elaborate mansion. Mr. Russell's valet or valet, named Watson, played by Michael Cerberus, appears to have a secret, while Turner, played by actress Kelly Curran, who is Mrs. Russell's lady's maid, hired to mentor her employer in the ways of societal style and fashion, Turner has her own agenda, that is, to replace her employer in Mr. Russell's affections. The household staff of each family have their own lives on days off, and we get some banter around the meal or work table. Many of them are recent immigrants. If the Gilded Age follows the pattern of Julian Fellow's Downton Abbey, perhaps we'll learn more about the cooks, maids, housekeepers, footmen, and other people who do the service work in season two of The Gilded Age. So let's talk about women and power in The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age shows women exercising power in the spheres that are open to them in a time when they did not have the vote and there were few respectable professions available, especially for women in the upper class who weren't expected to work. And marriage was the main pathway created for social and financial security. So we'll start our conversation around marriage and the the women in the Gilded Age. Well, certainly... We see Bertha Russell and her husband, George, are a power couple. They're a good match. Yeah, they share similar ambitions. I think Bertha is more socially ambitious than George. George wants to be a successful businessman, and he wants his family to be happy. But it's um, Bertha who really, I think, feels that the social standing they've achieved 
through George's business success, should be opening more doors for her and for her daughter, Gladys. And of course, she wants Gladys to make a great match and is very calculating around when Gladys should be able to see young men, when Gladys is officially, quote unquote, out in society, and who she and her family are associated with, of course, wanting the acceptance of those old money families, which is one reason why they moved uptown where those families were moving at that time. And where were they before they moved to 61st and and 5th or wherever they are? Uh, It seems like they were further south. Now, I don't know if they were like in the, I don't know where they were, but they were further south. And it seems like there was a move by wealthier families from, maybe it may have been Midtown, you know, as we know New York today, but definitely uh, up more towards the uh, 60s and, and Fifth Avenue. Yeah, I have to admit the Gilded Age has gotten me more interested in looking at the history of New York City because I think during this time, every city or region had its own social book of rules or rule book. Bertha, to me, is very interesting because I'm curious as to why she doesn't at least want her daughter to have what she has. She has a good marriage. She's financially secure. They're financially secure, at least for now. And she has a husband who loves and respects her for who she is. And I think because the two of them were strivers together, um, that they have a camaraderie. They're, they're collaborators. And maybe George isn't so much into the social part, but he knows it's a part of that and it will make his wife happy. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is there, is there anything that's enough for Bertha? Because I'm not sure if Bertha knows I don't, what I don't enough think, is. Yeah. I think if she, even when she gets what she wants, there's going to be something she wants more. There's going to be more that she wants. So I don't know what her ceiling is, but, um, you know, for what it's worth and where the fact that, as we mentioned, women didn't have the vote and other options, you know, she's in a pretty good place for, for that society. I think too, though, as a mother, she wants more for her daughter than she has for herself. I'm, I'm sure she's proud of what she and George have achieved, but she sees that more as a launching pad for Gladys to be able to make a really good marriage. And we see a woman who is very particular about who is wooing her daughter, who she thinks is good enough, who has uh, not only the wealth, but also the social standing and the capacity to be as at least as successful as George, if not more successful. Yeah, maybe she's looking for that name that when you when that when her daughter comes in with her calling card, nobody will question it. It's it right. just gets you instant entry into wherever you want to be. Yeah. In society. 
And then we see, too, that her across-the-street neighbor, Agnes Van Ryan, actually secured her family's, uh, well, she married a man. It wasn't a happy marriage, but she used marriage to provide financial security as well as social security for herself, but financial security for herself and her sister. So um, in that the family fortunes tended to go to the males, and even the fortune that Agnes has is going to go to her son. And of course, she wants her son also to make a good marriage. Um, I think we see that marriage was really important at that time and among that social set as a way of not only attaining status, but securing it and passing it along. Yeah, Agnes definitely, I think, has a clearer sense of the means to an end. Marriage is that means to an end, to make sure you have that security, lifelong, um, keep your money on the finances, uh, probably live I think she's living within her means in some ways. Her son, Oscar, may be another story. But yeah. um, she's pragmatic about marriage. It's not a ro- whirlwind romance kind of thing that Marion is probably looking for. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, Agnes is always on the watch out for Marion. And she also warns Marion about what kind of men... Uh, she's associating with, or to be aware that there are men who are also social climbers and therefore not to compromise herself with men like the lawyer, Tom Rakes, who are still striving, who are still trying to make a name for themselves and establish a position in society. And it's interesting because even though Marion's penniless because they have the name Van Ryan, well, it's not the Van Ryan, it's actually the Brooke family, which I think she says they're connected to the Mayflower or something like that. Um, but it was, it's like she's saying, by virtue of your ancestry, you are a, a class above, you are in the old money circle. Um, so it's just really interesting looking at how key marriage is for women's security, even among the upper classes. Yeah, I guess her her lineage is her currency since Marion doesn't have any money. And in the United States, to know your family story is actually an asset in some ways. And, it's a privilege, and a privilege. really. Yeah. yeah, because so many people don't know it. And I think about Peggy Scott, the only person who is very, very concerned about, you know, who she marries, et cetera, who she's hooking up with, so to speak, is her father. Um, and um, he wants her to be in a good position where she is free to call the shots in her own business, he wants to pass his business to her, which people would say today, wow, that's admirable. You know, we know people whose parents have passed on their businesses, but it's not, pharmacy is not the way Peggy wants to go. So what we learned, um, you know, she 
in in some ways, ironically, she has more options than maybe Marion. Yeah, and Peggy has her own dreams. Um, it's interesting because she is someone unlike her father, who was not born into slavery. So mm-hmm. her sense of her possibilities are larger than what her father, and he's attained quite a bit given yes. that he is a formerly enslaved man. Um, and even that he married a woman who came from a family uh, of color that was a, a free family of color and uh, is in Brooklyn and is, has an established business. He has really made made it uh, for someone of his time, and he wants more for his daughter too, including for her to make a good marriage. And also, interestingly, um, maybe even to have a profession or at least a business, which is different from the upper classes where there's sort of the way to say that you've arrived is the you don't have to work. Yeah, so many, um, as I was doing a project on Oberlin's Black Women Graduates, which I started with three graduates from 1884, Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Church Terrell, who was the daughter of the first Black millionaire, and um, Ida Gibbs. One thing I I was reading was how fathers were adamant, African-American fathers were adamant about their daughters getting an education because they didn't want them to become maids and vulnerable to their employers. Um, yeah, inside the house. Yeah, sexual advances of employers, for sure. So, so let's talk a little bit about the social power um, that these women are wielding in their circle, because, of course, the men had the larger power in the political sphere, in the business sphere. Um, they were the ones calling the shots in govern- government, in laws, legal probably religion too, as you think about it, because it still was a time where men dominated in most of the institutions uh, in the country. Uh, But women did have their sphere, which was both the household, but also the social circles that were really important to them. Yeah. And and one thing I uh, liked about the Gilded Age, it makes it gave me sort of a sense of the history of philanthropy um, in the country and how this new money was going to be part of that, a big player in that. So the women were sort of part of that sphere and sort of and and really defining it in various ways. So um, you know, Mrs. Astor is that gatekeeper. Um, so she's the gatekeeper for probably everything, not just the philanthropy, but also the social, who gets invited to what social event, who gets to be on the board or to build something like a music hall, or I guess um, eventually things like Carnegie Hall that would go up um, and, and, and things like that. Um, you, 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 you have to kiss her ring. Everyone has to kiss her ring. Mrs. Astor is the queen bee. Everybody who uh, gets the, you know, admittance 
It has to be via her per, her permission, though her uh, relationship with Mr. McAllister, it's almost like he, um, what is it, kind of like uh, fields, uh, fields out people or does the credentialing before she actually gives her blessing to enter the circle. Um, I think what's also interesting about it, it's all, it's almost like a version of mean girls in a way, yeah. because there's people who are out people who are in, there's always somebody who is the one. <laughs> and if you don't get their approval or their admiration, you can never feel that you're really you've made it that you're in that you're a part of the the circle so that's their circle yeah and and the other thing about it is um seeing things like well if mrs astor shows up that means the event can start or if mrs astor comes that means this is an event to be at or if mrs astor says i'm going to be at you will be at you don't dare not show up and that's, if you want to stay in the in circle right if you want to if you want to maintain your status as part of the 400 you'd better uh hop to it and uh do as mrs astor does in some ways i think how did mr McAllister mr McAllister become the um person who holds the list and he's from the south I mean, just the way Southern, Southerners were talking about carpetbaggers, what was he, some kind of social car- carpetbagger in the North? Who knows? Agnes Van Ryan. Agnes is interesting. She's got the name. She doesn't have all the money, but that name has a lot of power. Yeah, well, we know New York was, early New York was settled by the Dutch. And uh, there was quite a lot of money made by the Dutch trading company in the early history of the United, well, even before there was a United States. And there are even institutions today that still are endowed by the money that was made by those early families in New York. Yeah, Agnes is the one. She, in some ways, Agnes represents that that group who's going to hold down the line no matter what. Yeah, you know, it, it may fall, it may crumble, but they, you know, who to go to to get the whole history of who's who and where things start and begin, et cetera, and and the rules. She she becomes that kind of holder. <laughs> of the old guard, of yeah. the, old, the old families, the old money. And she's always talking about old New York. And she makes a big deal of the fact that her family, and I don't, I'm not sure if it's through the father's line, it may actually be through the mother's line that traces themselves back to the Mayflower. And so for her, that lineage holds as much or even more weight 
than wealth, than financial wealth. That they are part of, in a sense, a kind of uh, social dynasty. And it's not York. that we know, yeah, it's not that we know people like this, but I, I would be curious to know how did that family come from Massachusetts down to Pennsylvania? What were the reasons that got got them to Pennsylvania? Yeah. Their cousin Aurora, who's played by Kelly O'Hara, I like Aurora. She's the connector. Yeah. Yeah. Aurora is the one who can be convinced to um maybe relax some of those social conventions for a purpose. Right. She likes to get things done. Well, also for the purpose of making sure her husband's uh, financial security is sustained. Uh, given what we see, the power George Russell will wield if you come up against him. He is not someone who likes to lose. And he is someone who takes big risks. So it's interesting. He has a wife who also is a, a risk taker and knows when she's taking those big risks. Yeah, she has. She's a risk taker, but like um, Agnes, she's also pragmatic about those risks. She knows that she's going to have to pivot, that there's going to have to be some pivots for things yeah. to come out the way she'd like for them to come out. And the other thing is about Bertha is the social power she wields is understanding the rules of that world and do, using the resources she has to access it. You mean we're talking about Aurora, not Bertha? Actually, I'm talking about Bertha. Bertha? Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, Aurora... Um, I love that she is kind of the connector. She also is kind of like the eyes. She, you know, she sees who is at the opera with whom yeah. and how are they, what does that mean for Marion that Tom Rakes is at the opera with a, another wealthy family and their daughter? Or um, just when she notices that Marion may not be talking to the right person. You know, she's interacting with Mrs. Chamberlain. Um, Aurora is the one who, you know, whispers in your ear, you may not want to do that, or um, here's something that maybe you need to know. Um, so she's she's interesting in that, that way. And I think in some ways closer to Ada in temperament, in terms of having a little bit more social flexibility. And, and, and that's a kind of pragmatism as well. Ada has an intimate power. You know, if she's close to you, she can see things. She can suggest. She doesn't push. Um, she inside the home. You know, I would like to see, maybe that's for season two discussion, um, if Ada, um, Ada's also crafty. She's working on her quilt, her needlepoint. I mean, her needlework, I guess it's embroidery. But she, she knows things. And people would think because she's unmarried, she's underexposed or is naive, but she isn't. I think she probably reads a lot 
in the newspaper. She's probably keeping up with current events. And because she doesn't have the distractions of trying to be out in society and all the other responsibilities that that come with it, she can observe more and she can learn more. Yeah, I think Ada also um, is literary and seems to like cultural activities. And she's the power of, and a number of the older women have that power, to be the chaperone that gives legitimacy right. to young women being able to move around in society. Right. Yeah. So now but we go to Troy. you were that Bertha has no female friends. Right, right. And that comes from our Sanditon discussion with Crystal Clark because, you know, Jane and Jane Austen, female friendships are really strong. And um, in, in the Gilded Age, since we're looking at Bertha, and Bertha has all the moves here, um, she doesn't have any female close female friends. I mean, I, and, and that's not, I wouldn't say it would, it's something that's unusual. Because in some ways, Bertha can move back and forth very easily between George's world. I mean, she knows how to put on whatever it is, the face, you know, I'm just the wife, but she really isn't. I know not to get involved in George's affairs. He takes care of his business. I take care of what's going on in the household. We respect those boundaries and, and our abilities in that. And... Right now, at least in terms of her process, she probably doesn't need female friendships um, to have to confide in someone. I mean, Aurora may come closest because Aurora knows everything that's going on. But in, at least in this season, we haven't seen maybe a sibling, maybe a cousin, maybe someone from the old neighborhood. Who is Bertha? Who are Bertha's girlfriends? Well, George is Bertha's BFF. Yes, and even when he suggests that they invite or, uh, you know, go check out what's going on in the old neighborhood, Bertha wants none of it. She drops it on her coming up town, (laughs) and she has no interest in either revisiting it or having it follow her uptown. So it's really interesting. Uh, when you talk about her pragmatism, that's, I think, the underbelly of that kind of pragmatism is the ability just to like cut all ties, cut all relationships. And uh, yeah. And, and stand and by your man. Of, for the sake of striving. Yeah. And also to protect her marriage, probably. She doesn't want women to get too close. She doesn't. Tr- I, I think she has trust issues, as they say, maybe rightfully so. We'll find out. Yeah, well, she has the good reason to have trust issues. Right. She kind of missed one that was hiding in plain sight. But yeah, that's for people to to watch the series and know more about that. So choices, waiting for life to happen, Marion, Gladys, Carrie Astor, yeah, it's almost like you look at those as privileged lives, and yet similar to what we heard 
Um, I think it was in Downton Abbey when Mary talks about you basically just wear pretty clothes and wait for somebody to choose you and get married. And then that's your life. You know, that's, that's your, your want to make yourself as much of an ornament as possible so that whoever chooses you is a good match. Um, but that limits their choices too, in some ways. And they all want love. That's very important to them. So it's important and it's also the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Cause especially if you're wealthy, is that person, is your suitor someone who really cares about you or do they care about your fortune? And that's also a theme uh, from some of the other historical dramas we've watched where women have to be on the lookout for fortune hunters. And it's interesting because not all fortune hunters are poor men or men from so-called working class. Some of them are wealthy men who want to increase their wealth. As like we Oscar. See in the Gilded Age. Yeah, like Oscar. Now, can I say the term gilded cage for these women? Because if they want to break out of their social patterns, they can. I mean, they could go, they could go rogue. I mean, it comes with a cost. Yeah, big, big cost. I mean, if that's the only society you know, and you're the outcast in it, but. And Marion's willing to go rogue. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's willing to have a life that isn't bound by those kinds of social and I would say in cultural restrictions. And also, it's, even though it's 1882, there's still the, how can I say, the glitter and glamour of coming to New York, the big city, New York City. I mean, it wasn't the Big Apple then. But um, definitely, Marion has not really explored all her options, I would say. I think she needs to know the city more. And maybe she wants to, but maybe I'll save that for that sec. Well, season some two. of her, her one of her options is through volunteer work, uh, because of course the aunts are appalled at the idea that she might want to take a job, but they're okay if she picks the right charity to work with. Yeah, I have some thoughts about it. Probably the other way she expands her world is her friendship with Peggy Scott. Yeah. And maybe even Larry Russell, who wants to be an architect. So he's going rogue. Yeah. Yeah. By insisting on having your own life and not the life that your parents yeah. lay out for you. Um, and that's something I think of if you look at all of the young adults in the Gilded Age, they're all in some way trying to make their own lives and break free from the restrictions that their parents would put on their, their social interactions and the choices that they make for themselves. And that's part of a social pattern where the parents are the strivers, they create the, the financial foundation, the security, and the children can become the artists and et cetera and so forth. Um, because, you know, you have your parents to back you up. You know, they've created that financial security for you. There's but, also sometimes that because you didn't have to earn your own wealth, right? you don't have no idea what it takes to make it and sustain it. So 
called trust funds. That's interesting. But this this does lead us into the children wielding power. Mm -hmm. And um, how parents are, um, they want to, in the Gilded Age, one thing I do like, the parents do want to have good relationships with their children. We don't have a lot of antagonizing relationships between parent and child. We have the usual not fulfilling expectations, wanting to fill expectations, but bottom line, we still want to be in good relationship with our children. Yeah. And it's interesting, even in the 1880s New York among the wealthy set, a child wanting to go to a particular party and pouting about it mm-hmm. and giving their parent the silent treatment about it can cause the parent to relent a little bit. And particularly when you look at um, Carrie Astor and her relationship with her mother, Caroline. And Mrs. Astor, that relationship with her daughter is important to her because we get the sense that the husband isn't around very much and that she and her daughter are kind of like um, companions as much as they are mother-daughter and that they are, they are seen together on social occasions um, that they go together to the balls and they go together to the uh, bazaars, the fundraising bazaars. And um, so that's something I think that remains true down through the ages, that parents really want to see their kids happy. <laughs> uh, it, and it's a strategic move for Bertha because the friendship between her daughter Gladys and Carrie is the icebreaker. I mean, right. it's not really an icebreaker. It's sort of like a... Well, it opens the door. It opens the door. Um, and even today, I mean, I was thinking about this, how there are some parents who choose schools, and I'm talking about K through 12, based on whose children are attending those schools. Because not only... Is it advantageous for the kids? I mean, in t- about getting into the best colleges, the Ivy Leagues, but it's advantageous for the parents who want to network with these prominent parents in terms right. of their own careers, et yeah. cetera, because these schools usually have very strong parent organizations and activities. And this is a door to getting into that group. Yeah, and even... George uses a social occasion. Um, Well, actually, he uses a business relationship to strong arm a couple to come to a social event given by Bertha. And so you see that there's actually a blending of the business, social, just as we see even today, often people go to different kinds of events because they want to network. They want to meet, you know, the right people or make connections. Um, So that's something we see 
as a big part of this Gilded Age world in New York. And George says, your wife's coming. I right. mean, of course, the guy could say, the man could say, well, yeah, I'll make an appearance. No, you and your wife will attend. Right. You will be there. And it yeah. doesn't mean anything if the wife is not with him. Right. Listen to part two of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters special edition podcast on the women of HBO's The Gilded Age and how they exercise power as professionals, workers, philanthropy and volunteerism and seduction. We also talk about what we'd like to see in season two of The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age is created and written by Julian Fellows. Executive producers include directors Sally Richardson Whitfield and Michael Engler, who directed the first Downton Abbey movie. Co-executive producers include Sonia Warfield, who writes for the series with Julian Fellows, and Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, historical advisor to the series. To our listeners, thank you for joining this podcast. Listen to past episodes of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. You will find the podcast webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Find, like, and share the historical drama with the Boston Sisters podcast on your social media. This is Michon Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients, or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. <laughs>